0: Hello and welcome to this Inside Briefing podcast special. I'm Catherine Haddon, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government. With 15 million people vaccinated in the UK in two months and the latest data suggesting that the vaccine rollout is ahead of target, the Prime Minister is due to set out plans next week for how the UK government will start to ease lockdown restrictions in England over the coming weeks and months. But they're already warning there is a long way to go. This is the third time that the UK government has lifted a national lockdown since the start of the pandemic. And like last May, the government will be publishing a roadmap on how they're going to go about it. So what should we expect to hear next week? What are the objectives the government should be guided by? What are the biggest risks for getting this right? And how is the prime minister going about keeping his party and the public confident in his approach? Our panel today will discuss all this and more. We have Christina Pargel. Professor of Operational Research at UCL, a member of Independent Stage and frequently on the airwaves explaining COVID data. Hi, Christina. Thanks for joining us. Hi. Also joining us is Mark Harper, MP for the Forest of Dean, former Minister and Chief Whip and currently Chair of the COVID Recovery Group of MPs. Hi, Mark. Welcome. Hi, Catherine. And we're also pleased to have Stephen Bush, political editor of The New Statesman. Hello, Stephen. Always nice to talk to you.
1: Hello, lovely to talk to you.
0: And finally, a warm welcome to my colleague Tom Sass, Associate Director at the IFG and our in-house expert on all things science advice in government, vaccine rollout, and more latterly, co-author of our latest paper on how the government should go about lifting the lockdown. Tom, thanks for joining. Hi, Kat. Okay, lots to talk about, so let's dive in. Christina, I want to come to you first. Uh, We've seen the government ease and tighten restrictions many times. But what's different this time, particularly how does this compare to how the government went about lifting lockdown last May and into the summer last year?
2: Well, I can't say for sure what's different until we actually see what they publish. But the mood music has definitely been a lot more cautious, I think, than last time. And I think for the first time, you know, we're not, you know, there's this big kind of catchphrase now, which you're seeing across all the different nations of the UK is, you know, data not dates which I totally support, that you're driven by what's happening and not by some kind of arbitrary deadline. Um, so I'm guessing what, what we'll see on Monday is schools reopening in some form in March. And I think they'll either open them all or start with primary. So I think that, that's kind of one big decision point. Yeah. And, and I doubt that we'll see much else opening until spring, which I think is the right decision. You might see some relaxation of outdoor
0: rules. Um, you were obviously presenting on Independent Sage earlier about the latest data and figures. Um, do you think now is the right time to be starting to talk about this and for the government to be setting this out? Are the figures in a place where we can start to think about this stuff?
2: So the figures right now, we're roughly where we were in November Towards the end of the last lockdown, or early December, but then we kind of opened up quite a lot, and we all know what happened over yep. December and New Year. Um, and we're still so we're currently just above one hundred cases per hundred thousand people per week. Now remember in the summer we've imposing restrictions on cities and areas that got more than fifty when Sage recommended a circuit breaker in September, we were at about sixty seventy cases per hundred thousand so we're still at high levels, even though we've come down massively in a few weeks. We probably will be under a hundred per hundred k and I think because of the 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 massive disadvantage of keeping schools closed I think it's the right time to try and open schools I don't think it's the right time to try and open anything else especially not now that the new kind of more transmissible variant is dominant everywhere in the UK
0: yeah okay we'll come to a bit more of the detail of, of what the government can do and how it starts thinking about sequencing Stephen um We've heard a lot about the more cautious approach now, as as Mark's just been talking about there, uh, but also far more of the government under promising and over delivering. Do you think this is a new approach? Do you think Johnson has a different view than before Christmas? Do you think that's changed his mind? The experience in the last few weeks.
1: Yes, I, I think. Um, yeah, I, I think one from what the government is saying publicly, but also what various people in government are saying privately. I think there has been a change in approach with the. One important disclaimer, then. Unfortunately, the thing that hasn't changed is that the government is being opaque about what its rationale for lockdown, not lockdown, is. Right? Mm. In the up until November, the 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 it's implicit logic of everything the government did was: we'll be as open as we can get away with before the NHS starts to cry uncle. Now, you can argue about the benefits of that as a policy, but our, it feels to me pretty clear in terms of the mood of the country then if a minister had stood up and said our our policy is to run the NHS as close to capacity as we can get away with, they would not have been able to win consent for a, po- a policy that loose. I now think we maybe have the reverse problem where uh, the government has now got a tighter approach to lockdowns than it had last year. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I think, certain that if a minister stood up and went our new policy is, you know, completely break the back of any new variants, fairly tight lockdowns until everyone's been offered a first dose, um, then you would have political consent for that either. Mm. And I think that is the thing that really unfortunately hasn't changed, is that the government has never been clear. I think it's really positive that they've moved to a kind of, um, you know, data rather than dates. But they have never been clear about what data matters to them. And I think that... um, yeah, the, that is the central reason why so many Conservative MPs are going. Uh, hang on a bit. Haven't the goalposts moved here?
0: Yeah, that's true. And Tom, that was something I wanted to ask you about. We've heard a lot of this line: data, not dates. Um, you know, we, uh, the government are giving the impression that metrics are going to be very important to go about implementing its strategy. But it talked a lot about that in last May in its its roadmap. Then, do we have confidence that it will use them well this time?
3: Yeah. So, I mean, if you go back to that strategy last April, May, you had this sort of very confusing architecture where you had five tests that were set out around NHS capacity, PPE, this sort of vague idea of hoping to avoid a second wave. You then had a timetable in that strategy, which sort of bore little or no relation to those tests. And then you had the JBC being created and four alert levels. In theory, to advise on when restrictions should be eased, but the JVC was basically ignored, or, or its kind of alert levels were too loose to sort of make much difference. Um, so, you, you I mean, that may have been a deliberate attempt to sort of gloss over some of the differences in cabinet and and actually allow some of that strategic confusion that Stephen was talking about, um, because they didn't want to sort of have those difficult conversations. But the practical consequence of that was that actually decision-making was always delayed. So you Mm. saw the R8 start to rise above one in some places from July, all regions by September. You know, action wasn't taken for a very long time. Um, So I think what what we've argued for in this report is for a much clearer mechanism for tying whatever data and, and sort of metrics they want to focus on to action, you know, and not for that to be just
0: pro- just left to some sort of uh, confusing process. Christina, I mean, that's an area you know about well. What's the kind of metrics that will matter the most? There's a lot of talk about the R number, of course, um, and keeping that below one. Is that the crucial thing or is it also about deaths and hospitalisation? And do you think the government can give an idea about what are the right sort of levels of acceptable risk, like talk about actual numbers um, in terms of infection cases or, or deaths and hospitalization or, or, or what?
2: I mean, R is not actually that useful for right. managing the pandemic, partly because it's always based on, on data that's two or three weeks old and the situation a few weeks ago. And secondly, as cases get much lower, it becomes less useful. Um, so as, as a limit to how much you can fall once you're at like, you know, 20 cases per 100,000 per week. Yeah. I think the crucial thing is the level of infection, and that's partly because of the vaccines, you know, like Mark Harper was talking about. They are incredibly positive that we're doing this. The problem is that if we have a lot of infection in the community, even among younger people who may not need to go to hospital very much, um, every time you have an infection, you give it a chance to mutate, and once you have a whole reservoir of people, the current variant can't infect because they've been vaccinated. If a mutation arises that can, it will spread, and Mm -hmm. it will have a massive advantage, And basically, the risk is that we lose all the advantage that we've got by having a great vaccination programme. So to me, the the key thing is to keep it down so that we don't grow a new variant and we can vaccinate everybody by autumn, which we're well on track to do, if not by not even earlier. And then we're in a much, much better position for winter. So I think that is, to me, it's it's that infection rate that they're going to try and keep as low as possible. And I think that's kind of what's motivating this more cautious approach.
0: Mm. And and Mark, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think they should. There's two
4: flaws with that argument, I think, and I'd be interested to, to hear what Christina thinks. The first one on the mutations, um, I accept that point, except that it misses out a really important issue, which is the rest of the world. That, However low we get the infection rate in Britain, for the next couple of years, there are going to be millions of people with COVID in the world. And if a mutation exists, uh, is going to arise, it is going to find its way to the United Kingdom. So the idea that we can somehow stop the v- the virus mutating uh, by focusing on what's happening in Britain, I-, I think we're just kidding ourselves. And if we're going to lock down the country until there's no risk of a new variant, we're never going to emerge from lockdown ever. And the chief scientific advisor has said that COVID is going to be with us forever. So that's the first point. The second point on the timing is that lockdowns have massive economic and social costs. So just if we just roll this out, our argument was uh, end the, the rules when you get to the end of April. That is quite a long time. That would mean a four-month period. That's another two and a half months from now. If you start adding months and months onto that, we are going to see a significant number of businesses and jobs being lost, and that has enormous economic, social and health consequences into the future. There's a cost to this. Ministers have got to listen to scientific advice, but also economic and social advice and balance them and not just weight everything towards the advice coming on the COVID, to specific COVID advice. There's a balance to be struck here, and that's the job of ministers. Difficult job, admittedly, but it is an
0: important job for ministers to get right. Christina, do you want to come back on uh, to? mark on that i mean you know
2: so, so the first thing on variants arising in other parts of the world is yes they will right but the, the danger is that if they arrive here before we have finished our vaccination program we're much more vulnerable because we do actually have some border controls in place we think they should be a lot stronger that we should just have blanket quarantine wherever you go in the world for so this year until we have vaccinated everybody we will know by, by winter, what new variants have arisen as the rest of the world tries to vaccinate as well. And then already the, the, the pharma companies are working on boosters that will tackle these new variants. So we can offer people a booster dose before it becomes widespread here. We cannot do that if they rise here this summer. So it's purely a risk thing there. On the second point, um, we're not arguing for lockdown all summer. That is really not what we're doing. We're saying open schools first. Wait four weeks, see what happens. Then you can start opening more cautiously. Put in place all the mechan- mechanisms that we know can drive infections down. Things like actually paying people to isolate. Things like having a bit of safer workspaces. Encouraging people to be outside. All of this we can do. The vaccines make it much, much easier to keep things down. You just need a bit of extra support. No one's saying lockdown. I find this kind of bit weird that we're not saying that. And in fact, opening too early, it much increases the risk of lockdown with all of the harms that come with it.
3: So, Kat, if I can just, uh, yeah. so I think, well, Mark's sort of pointing to quite an interesting tension as I see it in what the government's coming out with, because if they're proposing a very sort of slow timetable and keeping transmission down in the UK and sort of being concerned about the emergence of any variant here, but at the same time they've come up with a hotel quarantine policy that by all accounts is quite leaky, then, you know, Mark's right that you you might lose some of those games and actually the big costs wouldn't be worth it. So in a sense, if it is going to come out with a strategy along the lines that it's been signalling, then you'd really think that it needs to do quite a bit to firm up its hotel quarantine plan as well, because it's no good, you know, having having all those routes in as it does at the moment.
0: Stephen, if I could bring you in, I mean, that point that Tom makes about the hotel quarantine policy, there's also... The important of not just test, trace and isolate where, you know, this time, like, well, not this time last year, but the last roadmap actually that, you know, the test and trace policy was turned out to be in pretty poor shape. Um, this time around, one of the big issues is still managing to get people to isolate if they have been, um, you know, found, traced, um, tested and so forth. But, How well do you think these other policies, not just the vaccine policy, but the other supportive policies that the government need to have in place, how well set up are they?
1: Um, Not very, I think. (laughs) I mean, so there there is a sizable group of people in government who understand the need to have some kind of institutionalized um, solution for isolation. Uh, Yes, also you need to pay people to be able to isolate regardless of their living circumstances, but then if you don't have a measure of central quarantine, particularly given the type of occupation, point in the labor market, point in people's lives, then people will tend to have those type of jobs. If you don't have some form of central quarantine, you're basically just leaving your back door unlocked. But I think this, this is where the fact that we're not having this, I, I know it seems slightly strange to say on a podcast, we're not having this debate publicly, but because the government, because everyone but the government is having this debate publicly, I think it creates this, this slightly strange situation where no one goes, Oh, hang about. If we're going to do this, are we going to fix isolation? Are we going to, are we going to have, you know, an airport quarantine policy not based, or, you know, based around the idea that Heathrow is not a hub airport? Um, yeah, all of that stuff. And, it doesn't seem to me likely that any of that will improve in time, not least because if we were to do any of the stuff we'd need to do to fix isolation, those would all require fiscal commitments, and we haven't got a fiscal event until uh, the 8th of March, and there is little to no prospect that there will be a serious, large commitment to either pay paying people to isolate or uh, to establish uh, effective and working central quarantine.
0: I okay, get that. I mean, that's an interesting point. We raised this in our paper that um, our chief economist, Gemma Tetlow, talked a bit about the, the need to have the Chancellor on board, um, if this is a whole of government strategy that, that everyone is signed up to. Um, you've talked about a couple of particularly around incentives, but there's also obviously continuing support and so forth. Do you think the prospects are that the Chancellor is more supportive this time round than, than last year when we saw a lot more pressure towards opening up the economy and, and policies that seem to be developed away from the sort of epidemiological discussion?
1: Um, I don't think so. I mean, the Chancellor at some points has, has started sending uh, the Chief Sec to Covid O meetings, which it feels like a wonderful sort of continuation of the idea, and ultimately the Chief Secretary of the Treasury's job is to have to eat buckets of things the Chancellor would rather not eat themselves. Um, but I think what we're actually seeing is the proof of something that, so during the Falklands War, Margaret Thatcher uh, consulted various former living Prime Ministers and one of the bits of advice she got was, whatever you do, don't have the Chancellor in the War Cabinet. And I think then we are once again seeing the, the the value of that advice, but unfortunately we're seeing it through the breach, which is then, there is still a major split in government about the cost of, of this stuff. Some would say understandably because that's the Chancellor's job, some would say then the problem isn't the Chancellor is, you know, where all told but whatever wherever one comes down on that. Uh, there is still a problem in the heart of government. There are two very different approaches to how much people are willing to pay to do all of this stuff.
0: Mark, is is that your view as well? Do you think? I mean, is the Conservative Party more widely quite split on this? I know, obviously, there's you and and the other group, the members of CRG, but but how fundamental a difference is there? Well, I think.
4: Just picking up Stephen's direct point on the Chancellor. I mean, I don't think you can say there's been a lack of willingness in the Treasury to pay for things, given the the, the very extensive costs that have gone into paying for uh, test and trace, the vaccine programme, uh, procurement of things, uh, and also the huge resources put into. Uh, the, the Job Protection Scheme, the Furlough Scheme, Self Employed Support, and all of those things. I mean, it's an enormous commitment from the Treasury, um, but but I, I do think it's right that the Chancellor is involved because, as I said, and the Chief Scientific Advisor and Chief Medical Officer accept that their job is to give the Prime Minister and the Cabinet scientific and medical advice. But they accept that you've also got to look at economic, social impacts of these policies and you have to balance them. So I think the Chancellor has to be in the room for this reason. The roadmap that the Prime Minister sets out on Monday is effectively going to underpin a lot of the decisions the Chancellor sets out a week later in the budget because it's going to profoundly affect the recovery uh, this for the for the whole of this year uh, and probably into next and I don't think you can pretend those things are not connected so the Chancellor does need to be in the room uh, and he needs to be part of the decision-making process so we come out with properly balanced decisions taking into account all of the factors that are um, that are important not just specifically COVID information
0: um okay just taking up those points then i mean we've talked a bit already about schools and um the priority to get them back you know concern uh, about children's education and well-being and and so therefore wanting to fo- to focus on and prioritizing that but what kind of trade-offs will the government be most focused on after that we talked a bit in general terms about um the economy uh, you know and we talked about some of the detrimental effects of of um Uh, lockdown more generally. But what are the kinds of activities? Where will be the greatest amount of lobbying and so forth? Will that be a bit different from last year, do you think? Uh, I think a
4: lot of it's going to be... Well, I think there are some things that I think that are very low risk anyway. So I I don't think it's a very good case for... Uh, not opening up things about outdoor activities and people being able to... Now, for example, I don't understand why the government currently says you can only go out to exercise once a day. I, I don't think that makes any sense at all, to be honest. So the sooner that we can get rid of things like that, the better. On the e- economic front, the only area we specifically called out uh, in our letter to the Prime Minister was the hospitality industry for a very important reason. Uh, it doesn't have a, a linear, equal impact through the year. So Easter is a very important period for the hospitality industry. And so what we've said is that we should really try and get the hospitality industry open in a COVID secure way. So following all of the all of the procedures that they've put in place at great expense for Easter in a way that is uh, economically sensible. Because if we don't do that, then I'm afraid quite a lot of people who are listening to this podcast who may be on furlough in that industry, are going to discover they don't have a job to go back to because a lot of businesses are not going to be able to sustain uh, not opening uh, Easter. Uh, and, and by Easter, we're going to have vaccinated, even on the, the government's target, we're going to have vaccinated about two-thirds of the groups five to nine. So we're going to have protected a huge amount of people uh, from from COVID.
2: Can I just come in on, on hospitality? Um we're not in the same pandemic that we were in a year ago we have a much more infectious strain even with the old strain we struggled to keep hospitality open and cases from growing there is no country in the world that's managed to do it with b117 which is our new more infectious strain portugal and ireland tried it and had the highest rates in the world during their peaks israel had really high rates they still have high rates even though they vaccinated 60 percent of their population so the, the the fact is that we had these massive spikes we had a lot of restrictions the whole time we now have a more infectious strain it's not the over 70s that are going to pubs and it's not even the over 50s that tend to be spreading it what we saw in the autumn in the summer and in every country that's open hospitality is it's driven by younger adults who are not vaccinated so you are creating then a situation where you're going to have a big surge, and that puts us in a much more a much more risk of having more lockdowns. And and I just feel like that that just seems like a crazy thing to do. when we just literally come so far from these crazy peaks that we had in January when the NHS was overwhelmed to try and jump into that straight away for the sake of six more weeks to save the rest of the year. It just seems like such a good trade off
4: to me. Well, the tra- the challenge I would have there though is what is the the evidence? that hospitality presents a big risk. If you look at the contact tracing data, the the single biggest risk area for virus transmission is in people's homes. There is very little evidence that hospitality venues, COVID-secure hospitality venues, were a big source of infection. There's been an analysis of the eat-out-to-help-out scheme that shows there's no correlation between areas where there was a big take-up of that uh, and uh, arising cases, uh, and there are very few examples of, of outbreaks being traced to hospitality venues. And the hospitality industry uh, has looked very carefully at staff infection, for example. There, there's just very little evidence that COVID secure hospitality venues were a very big driver of infection. I've looked at a lot of the papers domestically and internationally. The evidence is incredibly weak that hospitality is a big risk.
3: If I could come in on this one, Caste. um the paper that Mark referred to, so the Treasury was sort of briefing out two weeks ago um, this sort of, uh, to favour journalists at The Sun, the sort of new data which shows there's sort of no link between out to help out um, and rising cases regionally. It was incredibly thin. They didn't publish any of the data or na- analysis that they were talking about. And what we've had in the UK is, is several economists putting together studies which show A rise linked to eat out to help out and we've also just got common sense in that we know uh we know sort of how covid spreads indoors in poorly ventilated settings and we know that eat out to help out was used to claim 160 million meals over the summer so i think the fact that the treasury is sort of now starting to try and fight that pr battle over whether eat out to help out did spread COVID on or not sort of suggests it hasn't learned some of those scientific lessons about how the virus spreads but just to come back to your point and your question about sequencing because I think this is really important about where we might be going here so because we don't know what the impact of the return of schools is going to be and people have rightly talked about why you should prioritize that but it's quite possible that returning schools alone with this more transmissible variant could tip up the r rate above one you know some people have said that so I think you do need quite a bit of flexibility and monitoring in terms of how you sequence the rest of your measures and being responsive to that. And the Chancellor will need to be able to respond to that and not be sort of too pegged down. The other point I would just make on the sort of being able to adapt and the data, so our colleague Giles Wilkes uh, was tweeting yesterday quite a good sort of metaphor for this about being in the government at the moment is a bit like steering a ship, but the, the ship only moves sort of two two hours after you've turned the wheel. Um, And, you know, there's something in that, which is that the government's not going to have real time information about exactly what the effect is. But it could be that the effect is much bigger than it might anticipate. So there there is some degree of needing to just be able to sort of monitor what the initial measures are going to do.
0: Stephen, can I bring you in at this point? I mean, You know, there's still going to be a lot of political arguments, aren't there, over this stuff. As much as the government is saying we're going to be driven by the data, not dates, then that's not necessarily saying that we we won't be driven by some of the arguments and so forth. Uh, What do you think the prospects are of the Prime Minister, um, you know, keeping the Cabinet together, not seeing repeats of what we had, uh, was it last week, about, you know, different messaging about summer holidays, um, and, you know, do you think his team, his new team in and around him in number 10 is going to help him in that? The departure of Dominic Cummings, the arrival of Allegra Stratton and Dan Rosenfield. Is that going to help?
1: Um, so I'm going to go for the easy one of those questions first, which is, okay. is, is, is the arrival of new people in Downing Street? Sorry, it should be, are the new arrival of new people in Downing Street going to change the problem? No, because the underlying problem is is is, is, is well, twofold. Firstly... Uh, The inheritance of the Don Cummings era, where a large number of MPs got it into their heads, not entirely incorrectly, I would add, that they were essentially never going to rise under that Downing Street and therefore they could um, indulge in being independent minded as much as they wanted. that, the taboo around rebellion has been comprehensively broken. Um, you know, I hate to plug a competitor, but Times Redbox did an excellent graphic in which basically showed that if you're not on the front bench, at this point you have rebelled at least once, statistically speaking. And the thing everyone knows, you know, whenever you speak to a, you know, former whip or a current whip, then essentially the thing you really don't want to do is have MPs rebel the first time because once they've gone through that emotional wall, um, yeah, and they wake up the next day, and their association or their constituency Labour Party doesn't hasn't burned them in effigy, and yeah, that their you know their friends are still answering the phone, and suddenly they go, oh, actually, maybe I do have strong opinions about the Uyghurs. Um, that hasn't gone away, and Downing Street being a bit more smiley doesn't fix the damage of, of of last of last year. But also, the central problem I think is that the Prime Minister. uh has never been particularly effective at deciding between two difficult trade-offs or at laying out why it is he wants to do something, which means everyone gets very cross, everyone ends up kind of forming into these sort of groups on WhatsApp or small groups in people's offices, um, where they just get more and more annoyed. And and this is this is not fair, but nonetheless a large chunk of people in my industry um do fetishise the idea that it's somehow weak for a Prime Minister to rely on votes from the opposition. So I therefore think it's very hard, I think, to see how at this point the government could get a buy in for the ambitious level of lockdown that it wants to have. Uh, and I think sooner or later, things will start to to fall off the wagon, maybe as soon as next week, maybe in March, May, when people start to go, oh, wait, the implications of that announcement are.
0: OK, well, that brings me to my next question. I mean, we can't talk about... Success in terms of the strategy as a whole, because obviously the success for us all is that you know the desktop stop happening, the vaccines are working, and we're out of lockdown in theory. But what are the successes that you know we should be looking out for next week, or indeed the failures? I mean, Stephen, you've just alluded to one that the wheels start to fall off in terms of how he sells this to the party and the public. Is that the key thing that you're going to be looking out for next week?
1: Yeah, I think the key thing to look out for next week for me is is one how. This is a very crude metric, but how many people, you know, from secondary school or from like former jobs after the prime minister has spoken are getting in touch with me asking about what they can and can't do? Um, because the thing I have noticed is that has a direct correlation on how quickly the parliamentary party doesn't doesn't kick off. If the if the average person understands what they need to do, then generally the average MP feels a equipped to defend it to their voters B is probably more likely to be on board with it uh, because it will mean it's been explained well. Um, and C, do we have some idea what the inputs we should all be looking out for in terms of light at the end of the tunnel, what it is the government is trying to do? And I think clarity for me is probably the the thing that will make or break next week in terms of the various pressures the government is under. All
0: right, Christina, what about you? What are you going to be looking out for next week? I think tone um,
2: and whether they actually come back with a roadmap that contains what the data thresholds are and what data they're looking at, and actually what their aim is, because if it's about not overwhelming the NHS, your policy is going to be different than if it's about keeping infections low, and what the time scale is. So are they looking ahead until they've got the whole population vaccinated and then reassessed? Are they looking six months ahead, a year ahead? So I think that is kind of what I want to see. Like, what what is their aim for the next 12 months? And can they articulate it? Um, yeah. So and, and can I just say one other thing about about the public? Yeah. Is that, you know, polls have consistently shown that the public support quite strong measures. They support the current lockdown. They definitely support getting schools back first. So, so I don't think it's true that the public is clamoring for an April opening. Okay,
0: interesting. Um, Mark, what about you? Um, what is the main thing that you'll be looking for next week?
4: So I, I think two things. We've obviously set out uh, some of the content. So it will obviously be some of the content that's in the, the roadmap. But I, I actually think I agree with with both Stephen and Christina here. It's also about the Prime Minister being clear uh, about the objectives and articulating the strategy. So we, we said in, in the letter that, that we wrote to him – It was for the government, the onus was on the government to explain, you know, if it was keeping restrictions and for for a length of time, it's the government's job to explain why, what's the evidence base and what's the objective. So I think, you know, I I can accept there might be things that I don't like. But if the prime minister sets out a very clear reason for them and and a well-argued case, that may both persuade me and also enable me to go out and defend it to other people, if there's things in it I don't like, but there's no very clear reason for them and it's not articulated very well. There's no evidence. It's quite hard to support it and quite hard to defend it to anybody else. So I think it'll be partly the content, but partly how well the strategy is set out and how well it's articulated and explained.
0: And Tom, finally to you, what are you going to be listening for?
3: Yeah, I agree with all of the above and say, you know, I I think broadly when we come to look at the document, it will be, Is is there more clarity about objectives, metrics and how they'll be measured and, and less of the sort of strategic fudge that we saw in the last one? And then I completely agree with the point being made about actually Johnson's role as a sort of persuader and explainer here. The ability to say, and this comes down to actually some very specific rules, you know, when people ask, you know, a colleague of ours keeps asking, why is it that I'm not allowed to play doubles tennis, you know? Why is it that I'm not? That would be to that? Rutter. <laughs> why is it I'm not allowed to do X, Y, or Z? And the government being able to say, you know, here is here is the evidence, and here's why you all need to be just bought into this plan over the next few months? Because I think those sort of small things are actually quite important to people's people's willingness.
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely okay well we all await the government's plans and no doubt all of us here will be talking a lot about this over the next week um, here at the IFG we will have more explainers and comments to help guide you on what it says and what it means and if you want more reading do visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk and you can find our paper there on lifting lockdown in 2021 so a huge thanks to my panel for being here today thank you all um, and thank you at home for listening